1: The unsurpassed, profound,
2: and wondrous Dharma is rarely met in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth.
3: So good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me? Great. Uh, so I'm this I'm Layton, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate for new people. Um, and I'm very happy to have with us as our guest speaker, Dale Wright. Dale has spoken at Ancient Dragon before, way back in the old days when we had a storefront temple on Irving Park. Um, so uh, Dale is um Professor at uh, Occidental College in Los Angeles and has uh, written many books. Uh, I'll just mention two, The Six Perfections, uh, Buddhism and the Cultivation of Character, a fine book. And then his most recent, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but looking forward to it, Living Skillfully, Buddhist Philosophy of Life from the Vimalakirti Sutra one of our old favorites. And uh, Dale has also um, edited uh, a number of books together with Stephen Hine, who was here last month, including Zen Classics, Zen Masters, Zen Rituals, Zen Canon, and the Koan. And maybe I'm leaving out some. But um, anyway, uh, Dale has been a very uh, profuse contributor to our understanding of Buddhism. And I'm really happy to have you here again, Dale. Thank you. My pleasure
0: to be with you this morning. <clears throat> I don't know which is more delicious, morning zazen, kinhin, or breakfast, but for me it's a three-way tie. Um, it's it's really uh, a great a great thing in the morning. But this is a special morning. It's Mother's Day, and um, mothers are something we all have, and. Um, um, it's a, dela- a, a day where we really celebrate and notice, cultivate the nurturing spirit. Um, my own mother died quite a number of years ago, but um, it seems as if she's more with me as the years go by. Um, her, I realize the degree to which she is a part of my composition. She's part of my deepest nature. So, and mothers have this nurturing spirit in deep measure, but we've all got a little bit of it. So it's a day to really celebrate that and and cultivate it in ourselves. Um, Probably every time you gather, you uh, mention the word prajna, paramita, the perfection of wisdom, which is what Zen and Buddhism is all about. But in India um, and throughout Buddhism, um, prajna Paramita is represented as a woman. Um, the female spirit is the spirit of wisdom, which is the same as compassion. And um, it is something that we should all study deeply and think about deeply. Um, but I've chosen as my topic today um, something that I'm I've been thinking about kind of almost all my life, all my adult life, but that I haven't yet entirely resolved in my own personal existence. And that's um, about a dichotomy that you can see clearly in Zen practice, but also in every aspect of life. Um, A tension between the discipline of control and self-discipline and um, becoming a a master of yourself in some sense uh, that on the one side and on the other side a kind of open receptivity where you're not trying to control anything um, more an openness that allows you to let go of control for once and ride something larger than yourself where you're not you're not the one in command Um, Both of those are crucial, obviously. The the first of those should be obvious to all of you. In order to engage in Buddhist practice, you have to come up with some discipline, um, a decisive commitment, willpower. You have to choose to sit zazen, even though it goes against your initial, you know, practice of your habits of life. Um, You've got to, in some sense, make yourself do it, decide to do it. All self-change, all self-rule are cultivated capacities, right? Our mothers teach us a lot of them, um, and uh, we're so thankful for that. But at a certain point, we have to take it over, right? We have to make decisions in our life, make choices, and come to um, be in charge of ourselves. So it's as though uh, these cultivated capacities are mental muscles, Um, that have to be built day by day. It's a high-level skill to be mindful and awake because you choose to be. It takes resolve, strength of character, discipline of purpose to stay focused. Um, You know, if if you practice Azen, as you all do, you know that. It's work, it's practice, okay? So that part is clear. Now, contrast that with another side of Zen or with the the person who's really open to what isn't in the plan, right? Someone who lets go of the will to control, someone who, let's say, opens herself to participate in a flow of things going on in the larger world, something larger than herself, something other than yourself. Um, It's refusing the tendency to overthink, over purpose, over plan, where you free yourself up to go with something outside of yourself. So this person knows that there's a kind of fluidity in life that can't be achieved by just trying harder, right? You can try harder all you want, but there's a certain moment and fluidity in life that you can't make happen. So I'm going to illustrate this to start by a story that I've read Many years ago, but again, somewhat recently. It's uh, by a Russian author. We're not in the mood to celebrate Russia these days, but um, maybe this will at least remind us that um, depth of character and depth of purpose are found in every culture everywhere. And uh, Russians aren't to be equated with what's happening through Vladimir Putin. But in this short story by Turgenev, uh, we're to imagine two singers in a contest, in a pub, in a small village in rural early 19th century Russia. So, you know, almost 200 years ago. Um, um, in In a part of Russia where singing is the art, right? Everybody sings. Everybody practices. Everybody knows the difference between excellence in song and voice and the lack of it. And everybody knows who's good. Everybody knows who's not. And anyway, it's, uh, it's a contest between a local, Yashka, um, who's a 25-year-old, works in a paper mill in town, young man who um, is, has a natural gift. Right? He's a gifted singer, and everybody knows it. He's the best in the village. But he's up against an invited guest and competitor that in the story is called The Contractor, because he is also not a professional singer. He's a tradesman. And the, the Contractor is from a larger, small city, and his reputation is county ride, not just in the village. So everybody knows this guy's really good, right? so um the the loser is to um is to be judged by the audience and will be required to buy the win- the winner a quart of beer okay so <laughs> so um the it starts off the guest goes first, and uh he goes into a Russian dance tune, and everybody's attention is wrapped they uh, They see his skill, his technique, his training, his discipline. You can see which side of the spectrum we're on right now um and um but it you know nothing's greatly happening until two dancers in the pub get up and start twirling, and then everybody catches the spirit, including the singer who then begins to trill and go through all kinds of flourishes and everybody's with it now. And um, the whole room is rocking,
3: right? They've just
0: got it going, but they can see his skill. He can go up, he can go down, he can trill into just amazing number of repetitious movements. And his technique is rare. Nobody's in fact ever seen, heard anything like it. His control is unprecedented. Um, And nobody there has witnessed this kind of singing personally. Um, so it's, when it ends, the crowd erupts in applause and praise, and, and everyone knows the contractor has already won, including Yashka, the young village local, who is hesitant to even attempt to rebuttal. So, but the crowd insists he's got to do it. And it's like, okay, fine, yeah, but I can't compare to that. So um, after a deep breath, he begins. It's a bit faint at first. He's nervous. He's self-conscious. He's unassertive, but it's a mournful song, uh, a song of grief and deep sadness. Um, The initial notes are uneven, but eventually, pretty soon, he gets into the rhythm of it. And um, um, he begins to, in some sense, lose himself. Uh, He closes his eyes and he gets taken over by the song. So the song is, not being sung by him. It's being sung through him. Um, he, the mood of that deep sadness spreads into everyone. Um, some people begin to sob. They can just feel the depth of the sadness Um, His eyes are closed. He's literally taken out of himself, which you may know that's the literal meaning of ecstasy, to be taken out of yourself. You're gone. You're not there. So like a swimmer riding a huge wave, he's not pumping anymore. He's not paddling. He's just riding. And it's all happening through him. Uh, a, um, A mood, a spell has been cast over the whole room. No one can evade it. Yashka, the singer, has been kind of possessed, released himself totally into the music as though he's not even there. So everybody's just, you know, sniffing, but there's a, uh, the song ends, no one moves other than the sobbing. There's a dead silence. No one claps, no one cheers. Um, the the writer, Turgenev, says the rough country pub has become a cathedral. Right. So they're all in church now. They can feel the depth that's there in front of them, before them, within them. So Yashka finally opens his eyes and he's kind of dizzy, sort of out of balance. Doesn't quite know even where he is. But the contractor, the competitor, breaks the silence and says, OK, it's yours. You've won. You've got it. Um, And um, here's your beer. And um, then everybody sort of uh, erupts in laughter and praise of Yashka, the local. Um, and um, unfortunately, from my point of view, the story doesn't end there; it keeps going. But I'm going to ignore the rest because <laughs> that's where it should have ended. Um, and uh, for me, it's a beautiful demonstration of this contrast that I want to talk about. Right? So that on the one hand, training discipline. Uh, what you do when you sit every day and you make yourself do it, even though you don't want to do it, um, that is essential, right? You're training your mind. You're training your body. You're training self-control into yourself. Um, And the, the contractor in this story is a disciplinarian. His gifts are technical. He's highly skilled. He's got his control, his range, extraordinary. Few others have this. Yashka, less confident, you know, he's just a local, less practice, lacks some of the contractor's technique, but he's got a lot of it, it's not like he hasn't trained, he's been singing all his life since he was three, he's been singing, and um, he's worked on his control as well, but he's also got something more than that, he has trained in the capacity to let himself go into the song so that he's not doing the song. So whereas the contractor's performance is described in terms of what he could do with the song, Yashka's performance is discussed in terms of what the song does through him and um, what happens on the occasion, what happens in the room um, rather than what Yashka doing. So one's a master of the discipline of singing. Um, the other is an open-hearted young, people who, young person who, on one occasion at least, um, probably others, is able to become possessed, um, to le- release control, to let it go. Um, so it's a basic dichotomy, not just in singing and not just in Buddhism and in Zen, but in human life. And it's not between good and bad, right? This is not a good, bad contrast. Both of these are really good. And if you're doing zazen um, skillfully, you're doing both of these, right? You are learning both how to control your breath, stay with it, make yourself do that, discipline yourself, um, ride deeper and deeper into this capacity of will and of control, control of negative emotions, control of mind wandering, you're in charge of that, okay, on the one side. On the other side, you're training in the ability to simply let go of being you and controlling and being in charge, and you're training in the capacity just to be open, right? So you can even think of that in the, I don't know what kind of breathing exercises you do, but I do both of these where, On the one hand, um, I do breathing exercises. I mean, I'm I'm counting my breath. I'm doing a certain uh, depth of inhalation and exhalation, and I'm disciplining my ability to stay focused and to breathe. On the other side, though, I'm just watching. I'm just an observant. I'm not doing it. It's just happening. And we all know that breathing is something we do. You know, it's just happening. It's better to say we're not doing it, it's happening, because whether you know it or not, you're breathing. So um, those two sides are there right in our practice of zazen. Um, first side, self-discipline, self-control. Other side, a kind of freedom from that, freedom within that, uh, capacity to let go. Teachers like Tigan know this: that teaching an activity, teaching what to do is way easier than teaching how not to do anything, um, how to not be engaged in any doing at all, how to have how to have a practice of that kind of open receptivity. Um, the, the first one is easier to learn. Not easy, but easier to learn. The second, um, requires much more, requires a certain kind of, I'm going to call it faith, um, or we can call it trust, where you're not in charge of what's happening, but you're willing to let go and release to whatever is happening and to be moved by it. So we can call it affectability, your affect or your your feelings and your your ability to be affected, capacity to be moved, cultivated a capacity of letting be, of um, mindful openness. There's always a tiny element of activity in the background of it, because if you don't train yourself towards openness, you won't be ready, right? Um, because your natural instincts will be, I want to control things, I don't want to embarrass myself, um, I need to be in charge here. Um, and you have to have enough faith, enough trust where you can just let it go. Be whoever you are right now and let that happen. Um, you have to give yourself to that. So that's the tiny element of control. Um So the skill of release or openness requires trust, faith, confidence. The word confidence is interesting because you go back into the Latin roots, it's confides, which means literally with with faith. So um, the person who seems to have confidence has a certain kind of faith, if it's real confidence and not just the sham put on fake confidence that comes with assertiveness and ego. We've all got stories of of this kind, but here's one from my life that I have vivid memories of. I don't know how old I was, maybe nine. Um, um, My cousin lived in the mountains in California, and I was visiting and we went um, to go tobogganing on the the toboggan hill where uh, there was maybe 20 people there riding the steep hill down through trees. I mean, it was just... and i looked down and i watched a couple of tobogganers go down I thought, oh shit this is scary <laughs> um but um the my cousin and i are going to ride together um and he's done this many times before i i haven't and um he says you know don't worry this it's it's all good you eventually get to the bottom and you just enjoy the ride best thing to do is just scream out loud um and so i said okay let's go so we release And my instinct was to slow the toboggan initially. So I stick at my foot and we're already moving pretty quick. I stick at my foot, it gets grabbed in the ice and it rips my knee off to the side, uh, ripping ligaments. And my cousin is screaming in joy and I'm screaming in pain and we're wailing down this mountain and eventually get to the bottom, and I can't walk, and he's got to tow me home in the toboggan. But it's um, it's a story in my life that epitomizes inability to let go. I wanted to control it. I wanted to just have some say in how fast we were going. But, in fact, your say is whether you're going or not. Once you're going, you have to be going. So um, So the injury was a function of that basic inability to trust and to let go and to just ride. Okay, so there's a danger on both sides, right? I'm saying these are both good things, but there's also problems on both sides. What's wrong with being well-disciplined and self-controlled? Well, for one... Um you can get to the point where that is um, an addiction, and you're uh, you're unable to let go and just relax and drop that. Um, you can become the rigid disciplinarian, and we all know these people in our lives if we're not one of them, we know others who are um, who are just so stiff that you know um, you know the, the room bursts into laughter, and the strict person can't let go into laughter totally because it's kind of embarrassing. Your face turns red, you're drooling, it's uncontrollable. It's just so fucking funny, you can't stop. And, um, but some people can't do that, right? Um, and that's, that's a function of something good taken to an out of balance extreme where, you know, it's not so good, right? Something's down. What about the other side? Opposite problem, too much receptivity, is that possible? Too much trust? Yeah. Um, inability of self-rule, self-discipline is a huge inability, right? We all know this. So if we have to choose, you, know, you you better take the self-discipline side. But the point here is you don't have to choose and that cultivating both sides, becoming aware of both sides is really important, Downside on this side, picture yourself um, in early 20th century and there's been a terrible crime committed. A young girl has been raped and a lynch mob gathers and the anger is just flowing through everyone and you become a participant in a lynch mob. Right. And just the hatred is raging. You you release yourself into this collective spirit. Um, um, collective sentiment and you, you're you there, it's captured you. Or picture yourself cheering with a mob at a Hitler uh, crowd where he's going on and on, or picture yourself at a Trump rally where Trump's belittling a disabled person and everybody's, yeah, yeah, um, where they're just caught in that, you know, they let themselves go into something larger, they're riding a wave of sentiment, that happens to be an evil sentiment, right, so that critical judgment, which the disciplinarian has in spades, is essential right so having both of those at hand and having a balance is is um, the, the, the the point where all of this comes together, so um both abilities are important, both have a role to play in an awakened bodhisattva life, right? So, um, th- so we should make sure we understand that the, the capacity to let go and to trust and to be open isn't the child's capacity, right? Is the child's just always open and, and willing to go with whatever's going on. But um, for... The mature mature adult, we have to come back to that, right We have to reopen our heart and reopen our mind to the ability to let go of our instinct to control and to to let be and to ride greater waves that are really good, so discerning that difference is an important skill of the discipline side, but being able to let go and be taken up into something that will bring the best out of you, that will make you who you want to be, that will fit with your image of
1: what your own personal awakening would be. That's the crucial point on that side. Okay. I'm, I'm oblivious of time. Should I stop and do open questions? this is a good time to do that.
3: That would be okay. Um, if you want to continue, if you have something else you want to continue with a little bit, that would be okay too, either way.
0: Okay. Well, uh, let's, let's, let, let me hear what you have to say. Maybe some of you have personal experiences or thoughts on this. I'm just beginning to try to work this out in my mind. So I'd love to hear any suggestions you have. And maybe in the process, other points I have will emerge.
3: Great. Thank you. So, uh, David Ray, would you uh, call on people in Zoom or in the room? I can't see anything in the room, so uh, you or someone else could call on people there. And and for everyone, if you have comments, responses, questions, uh, please feel free.
1: I'll happily call on people. Jerry, is that your hand up? I have a question. Yes, please. Um,
0: I wonder if you might say a word about um, what the trust is in uh, or that, that which makes the best of us as we release effort uh that that which harmonizes or or gets that toboggan down the hill yes okay um excellent question that that's the key question um well a good place to start is with uh, a chant that um says i turn myself over to i give myself to the buddha the dharma and the sangha all right so the buddha meaning the 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 metaphor of spiritual depth. Um, As you come to picture it and reform it in your mind and picture it, um, you turn yourself over to the Buddha that's here within us and around us. Uh, The Dharma, the teachings, right? Teachings of wisdom from any tradition. Um, Go ahead and consider that the Dharma uh, because that's in, in most of our lives. We're not just focused on Buddhism, but there are other elements of wisdom that come into play. And the Sangha, a community of people who you can trust, who you come to trust, right? Now, there's a there's an interesting um, role here for gratitude to play. And the, the way to cultivate openness and trust is to notice moments of it that are important that you see in others and in yourself, and to appreciate them, ponder them um, you know think about them um, imagine them we we know from neuroscience the more you do that the more you're building brain pathways that will allow that to emerge right so to be grateful for times when even though you're shy let's say as an example you walked into a party And you were able to relax and you cracked a joke and everybody was with you like the one time when you weren't awkward. Right. That moment to treasure that moment, feel that moment, appreciate that moment will allow you just in terms of basic brain science to be more able to do that again, maybe someday. Right, you cultivate that, you practice it, but in in other religions, um, who do you trust? What do you turn yourself over to? It's much easier, right? It's God. Um, so in theistic religions, gratitude is huge. It's natural. You know who you're praying to. In Buddhism, it's um, it's it's not as clear, and this is something that's important to cultivate um, because who um who are you grateful uh, for what are you grateful for well everyone and everything around you is the buddha right um everything in your life um is something that you can um you can turn to right you can't turn to it without critical thinking but you can turn to it and cultivate it and and come to um to trust what you've discerned um, in the world is truly trustworthy. And we all do that quite naturally. There are certain people who become eventually, even though we might not be a trusting person, eventually we recognize I can trust this person, right? There are a few people in my life who I would trust my life to anytime. Um, And I just know that. Um, And there are circumstances in my life where I've disciplined myself, and I've been through these circumstances enough where I know that I can trust just my instincts. I don't have to overthink (coughs) or decide. Um, But the toboggan ride, good example. I had to make a decision, and probably as a nine-year-old, I couldn't possibly do that. There I am at the top of the hill. And I'm not going to be the one who said, No, I can't. Where's my mom? Uh, I'm going. But once I've made that call, I, I'm, I, I need to pull my feet up and start screaming with my cousin and just have that deep faith.
4: No, zone. Yes, good morning. Thank you for a, a very interesting talk. Um, this dynamic of control and release or letting go, uh, as you pointed out, it it is pervasive. I mean, it it's uh, going on at every moment of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, the place in which I become most acutely aware of it is on the toboggan ride of Zazen itself. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is uh it's an it's an ongoing thing, this thing of of control and balance. And if I'm honest with myself, um this how this plays out in any in particular session of Zazen seems to be as much of anything a function of of other things that are happening in my life. So sometimes I come to it and I'm kind of like, you know. And other times I'm a little, you know, I'm more easy, but the pervasive, um, I don't know quite how to put this because there's always a kind of a settledness in Zazen, but there's also this sense of moment to moment unsettledness. I always feel like I am off in one direction or another. Not always. There are the moments when, you know quote-unquote good zazen and like, yeah, you know. Yeah. But those are not all the time. So I wonder if you could speak to the question of of, of working with this dynamic within zazen itself.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um,
0: great question and insight into, uh, I can't imagine any of us don't feel that tug. And um, in my own practice, I uh, I probably mostly have no choice but to go with the flow of that day. And so if it's um if it's trouble, um then I'm facing that trouble. And if it's just I'm feeling good, well I'm just feeling good. Um and um but sometimes, and I do this consciously, and this is the disciplinarian in me, um, I I say, okay, yes, there's trouble in my family, there's trouble in my life. There's trouble at work, whatever. Um, But I'm going to reside on the other side. I'm going to try, I'm going to practice, just completely letting that go right now, and see if see if I can come into the middle balance by leaning the opposite direction. Now I have to admit that doesn't always work. Maybe more often than not, it doesn't. But um, but I. I do. I do practice that on occasion. Um, on the other hand, um, sometimes I think that it's the world and my interior world is just speaking to me, and I need to listen. And that zazen is the time when I should really be doing that deeply. And um, there, then I'm. Um, I'm, my, I'm aware of my breathing. And I'm doing consciously breathing while this something simmering on the sidelines, and I just let that ride, and I come out of it, um, mostly more able to take on the problem, not always. I mean, as all of you know, um, zazen isn't a technique of success. <laughs> it's a, it's a world of inner life that unless you do it, you don't really have this world of inner, you don't even, you have it, you don't know you have it. Right. It's to recognize what's going on deep within and to see it with clarity and um, true discernment. But um, um, I really appreciate that question. And uh, now that, you know, this is another example of when you bring something to conscious attention, um, you can you can work with it, right? Um, there's a book, uh, a book in philosophy called Make It Explicit. And that is that a lot of things go on that are just happening, just happening, uh, um, and you just do them. But if you make it explicit, right? Let me just think about that. What am I doing when I'm speaking to my daughter that way? What exactly is going on in that set of circumstances? Um, And you make it explicit and you call it out and you you might spot a place in there where, okay, I think I can improve on that stuff. It's been my natural instinct all along, but am I right? Is the instinct right? And in some cases, it's just not. So if you make it explicit and you draw it out and you clarify it, um, good things can happen. This is happening everywhere in our lives, right? Technology is making it explicit. Um, uh, Technology is hitting a point where uh, if you work in a, a highly technocratic work environment, everything is clarified, right? This is the discipline of getting everything down cold. Um, And so
1: downside there too, but um, explication can be the key sometimes.
3: Dale, it occurs to me and thank you for Uh, all you're saying, that um, another word to throw in there with this balancing of control and discipline and letting go is play or playfulness, that uh, there's some play between um, knuckling down control and just opening up, letting go. And then there's a Playfulness about how to find a balance in that. So I just wonder if you have any comments.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's that's a great word. I love that. Um, Just you know, on the surface, you would think that um, play is over on the side of letting go, right? Children totally let go. They have no idea what time it is. They have no idea anything. They're
4: in the play, they
0: are living there, nothing else is happening. And the discipline area, discipline is so self-conscious and so on. But there's another sense in which we're playing with discipline too. We're working out all of these aspects of our life. And um, I love the word play as a way to sort of juggle between these two. We're playing back and forth and playing ourselves and experimenting with ourselves, experimenting with our inner life to see how it comes, out. what happens when this happens? What happens when I go to the side? And um, so it is like a, a juggling act. Um, and um, the more, um, in my experience, I'm able to um, take playfulness to be part of my life in all spheres, left, right brain, um, the, the better off I'm, man. Uh, the 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 more I can relax, the more I can hear other people say what they're saying, um, and um, so there's so much we can learn from children on that. Just watching them is so joyful. Um, yeah, you know, but again, not always because then there's a the side where you're totally immersed in play, uh, this gets beating up on the other kid. <laughs> um, I I had I was talking to woman last night and she said, my son keeps saying, I want to kill you. And um, he says, I want to kill all the kids in my room, my school. And uh, she's saying, well, could you please not say that at least at school and we'll work with that at home. <laughs> Just, oh man. So kids playfulness goes into the pretty earnest. And at some point that can go
1: badly. <laughs> Well, anyway, tell again, that's I, I love that word,
2: David Ray. Thank you so much for for this talk. I'm I'm intrigued by the by Prajna Paramita and the things that you said um at at the beginning, thinking about how this 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 being is a is is more of a cult figure in, in in a lot of Asian Buddhism, and how the the very little that I know about it resembles what gets said about wisdom, for example, in in, in Jewish and and Christian mystical traditions, and it seems to be connected specifically to honoring uh, honoring the kinds of of wisdom that come from women, the kinds the kinds of of wisdom that that, that come from mothers or, or through maternal energy, and I'm I'm interested in you know in in thinking about. um Possibilities for devotional practice connected connected to that—that's that's a thing that, that I find nourishes my uh, my my own sitting practice and, and, and life practice. So I'd love to hear any any thoughts, advice you might have about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I do, and I'm um, I'm only like I've been taken with um, theistic religion. Um, I, I was raised secularly, so I didn't have it as a kid which I really regret because I think that's where it's deep. Um, but I, my first uh, interest in religion um, was as a college student. I began to go to, just before Buddhism was around much, uh, to a Hindu temple. Um, as some of you know, self-realization fellowship, where there's a lot of devotional things going on, a lot of meditation. I learned to meditate there. And um, where the two went together, where wisdom and the Spirit of the feminine were conjoined, and where gratitude was developed, and you know, gratitude is the best feeling. It's the deepest feeling when you can really be grateful so to the point where the tears are coming out of your eyes. Um, you're feeling something really, really wise, and so all of those things come together in this figure of Prajnaparamita. I I can never figure out early Indian culture, the the male female dichotomy, because it's so different from our own Western culture. But um, uh, in fact, the, the bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, is a male, right? And so, but in Western culture, no, that's wrong. And when Avalokiteshvara images went to China, eventually the mustache disappears. He turns into she, so it's a transgendered figure. Um, The Chinese, for the Chinese, no, come on. Bodhisattva compassion has to be a woman and they just make him into a woman. Um, And that the Bodhisattva of Wisdom paramita, um, would be a woman uh, from the start um, is, you know, from a Western point of view, mostly not quite right. We think of Socrates and Plato and figures like that. Um, but uh, in any case, having these diverse images to toy with and play with in our minds um, is really wonderful, and I'm also a great appreciator of what's called Pure Land Buddhism. Um, I love the Japanese figure Shinran. If you haven't ever had a chance to look at the writings of Shinran, you should do that. A contemporary of Dogen, um, a master of um, Buddhist depth of spirituality, and um, Dogen gives his approval. Um, where You can see Shinran's devotion getting right to the apex of Zen, right, where he's not praying to anybody out there. He's not being grateful to some particular figure. He's just being grateful. And that's what happens as you cultivate Prajnaparamita. Perfection of wisdom is the perfection of emptiness. And for those of you who know what emptiness means, emptiness is the interrelation and interconnection between all things. So if you're grateful to Prajnaparamita, you're grateful for the cushion you're sitting on, the air you breathe, your mother's crying that day, Everything is a moment of gratitude, even the kid who got in a fight with you when you were nine. Um, So um, that kind of gratitude is so fabulous in Pure Land Buddhism. And Shenron, for me, takes it to
1: the pinnacle. Uh, Really a brilliant um, Buddhist. That was a wandering... um... (laughs) Response to your question. Douglas.
3: Yeah, hi. I'd I'd, um, just to note that in our chant book, we chant from time to time after the the Heart Sutra will chant
0: the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, the homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, the perfection of wisdom gives light, unstained, the entire world cannot stain her. She brings light so that all fear and distress are forsaken and disperses the gloom and darkness of delusion. So we will do that from time to time ourselves. Yes, yes, and that's that's a beautiful chant. I love the, the Heart Sutra and, uh, and the Metta Sutra. <laughs> Or the meta chant, right?
1: Oh, yeah.
3: Other comments, or responses, or questions? I'll just add a little bit about Shinran, if nobody else is there. Um, so, yeah, Shinran is the teacher of, uh, the, the founder of what's now called Jodo Shinju, True Pure Land, uh, and, and just radical humility. Part of that is gratitude, as as Dale was saying, but uh, the formal practice they do isn't sitting meditation or zazen, but just chanting the name of Amida Buddha. Amida Buddha. Uh, And as you were saying, Dale, it's not about some particular figure for Shinran. It's just everything. But he, he was, uh, he, he was so humble that he said he could not even chant the name of Amida Buddha without Amida Buddha helping him. It's just this kind of total letting go of, uh, I guess what you were calling control, but self-assertion. It's, uh, it, it, so it's it's a radical openness, and it's a, a rich part of Japanese Buddhism. Um, and yes, he was in the same period as Dogen. So, uh, as Westerners practicing zazen, we can use all of this, all of these teachings, and you know, fo- follow Dogen, but also have this respect for this radical humility. So, I just just to add to uh, what you were saying about Shinran.
0: It's also um, a good thing um, to um, characterize the Buddha where you're letting yourself, turn yourself over to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. You've got the teachings to keep you really in balance and you've got the Sangha to help correct and keep you on track. And to turn yourself over to the Buddha um, in a devotional way is is a way to soften your heart and to open yourself. Um, If you imagine the Buddha as exuding compassion and love for all sentient beings, all living beings, um, turning yourself over to that spirit in a devotional way um, is difficult for many of us who are deeply secular, but it's a, a liberating practice, something that
1: anybody can practice to deep benefit. Thank you for your questions. Um,
0: I appreciate them very much. All great questions. And um, I um, wish you all the best in your practice and um, hope to be with you on another occasion.
3: Thank you very much, Dale. Uh, great to have you, and a and, uh, very, very helpful uh, talk in terms of awareness of both of these
4: sides of control and just letting go. Yes. Yoza. Yes, I wonder if you might yes, just... Um, I'm hearing about this most recent book of yours for the first time on... Um, Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti. Yeah. Yes. Can you say a little bit about uh, what you do in this book?
0: Yes. Um, I try to um, get to the essence of Vimalakirti for contemporary practitioners. So it's it's for us. It's not a book of scholarship about the Vimalakirti Sutra in its original context, although I play with that occasionally. Um, I try to say what it can mean for us. And so I go through what I take to be the crucial moments in the Sutra. And it's not a long book, um, but um, I talk about the key themes in terms that I'm hoping we can make use of. So I, I say, it's not a book of scholarship. It's a book of practice. And even though it's about a Sutra and um I uh looking back at some of my early work, I now repent of it where I, where I was writing for other scholars <laughs> and, and i uh, I realized that i I need to be talking to people who are serious Buddhists, and that 's what this is about and um, so um what else can I say it's my favorite sutra of all of them. Uh, you you know it a little bit or you oh
4: yeah I love it I love you've it. read it
0: yeah I love the the Robert Thurman translation yes. out of the Tibetan I, I think it's brilliant There's a brand new translation because uh, a new version Sanskrit version of the sutra is discovered in the Patala Palace in um, Tibet in Lhasa um, and it was always thought that the Sanskrit originals lost and would never be found and. Boom! In the late '90s, one was found. It's just been translated, but um, you know, translated in this you know kind of stiff way, um, where we're trying to duplicate it in its original context, which is basically you know maybe one century into the common so two, so two millennium ago. So, although it might be interesting from a historical point of view. It can't match Robert Thurman's brilliance at bringing out all of the depth of the sutra for, for our time. Um, I don't know. It's just a great sutra. So I play with it, basically. Um, um, so I hope you'll get have a chance to take a look at it. And, Tiger, if you do do that um, collectively, I'm happy to come back and talk about it if, if anybody does find it useful.
3: I'm sure it's useful. And yes, it would be great to have you back again, again. And um, yeah, I, I agree. The the Thurman translation is just wonderful. Uh, very, very useful. Uh, he's got wonderful glossaries at the back that I refer yeah. to regularly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I wanted to say that as a uh, uh, one of our great academic scholars, Dale is unusual in be in uh in in your writings that i 've seen in actually it uh addressing things from the in, in a way that uh is uh compatible and helpful for practitioners and i i imagine Dale that part of that is your own background as having practiced at CCLA uh, mm-hmm. uh for a while so you you understand that uh Buddhism is not some uh you know kind of uh dry uh, antiquated archaic uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know bit of writing um, so yeah and that 's what we 're about is, is how do we apply it in our own in this time in the, in this world in this in, this, in our lives and uh, you 've always uh, to me uh, uh, expressed that so uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: I'm always working towards it and trying to get the tone right and to, to sense enough about our current circumstances where we can, you know, fit the two together. But, um, but Buddhism is just so rich, and I, I've, um, I, although I've still, you know, Zen is my practice, um, I've, I've been really reaching out into other kinds of Buddhism more and more, and uh, and you know, and I've always toyed with other traditions too—Jewish um, um, humor, fabulous, um, Christian medieval mysticism, deeply selfless. You know, and my own Hindu background where I, I learned how to meditate. So there's all that in me too. <laughs> so not having been raised a religious person. I've always thought I want to be a religious person. Somehow there's got to be a way for me to be religious
3: and not be a fake cop out. <laughs> for myself, I was raised Jewish, sort of secular, but I was bar mitzvah and all that. And then had my first conversion experience a year after my bar mitzvah when I realized that, that, uh, had this I mean it was a conversion experience to atheism <laughs> I realized <laughs> that, <laughs> that uh, the, the idea of a personal deity just didn 't make sense to me and yeah. i don't feel that but uh, but also I, one of the things that 's wonderful about Western Buddhism now is that we have this opportunity to use and appreciate and play with all the all of the wonderful cultural religious and other cultural traditions that can be brought into our practice of Zazen and so forth. So yeah,
0: yeah that's true and what an amazing thing we realized in our historical moment we're the first generation we elders but now, yeah. and now into younger people first generation that has had access to the world's tradition nobody before knew anything about other traditions and, and nor could appreciate them and Um, But somehow we lucked into being born in a moment where all of that became possible. So deep, deep gratitude for that myself.
3: And and not only that, but all of Buddhism is available to us now in the first generation for for we elders. Uh, You know, in the West, we've got good teachers from all the different branches of Buddhism. So it's... uh, uh, it's a very unusual time.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Hopefully something good will come out of it. I can't imagine it won't be good. It's certainly taking its time, though, isn't it?
3: It's a difficult world we're in.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. Anybody yep. else, Jane or Angie or Nathan, any uh comments or questions while we're Gathered. Hi, Dale. Hi. I I just wanted to say that I've um, read parts of your books and found them very helpful. So no, thanks okay. for those.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that.
3: Well, maybe if there's nothing else, um, We can sign off now, but we will ask you back, Dale, and uh, uh, I love the Vimalakirti Sutra. It's one of the truly uh, playful, uh, you know, kind of, Vimalakirti is kind of a trickster, but he also is a a teacher of wisdom, and and anyway. uh, That's
0: In fact, if, 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 as far as I know, it's the first Buddhist text where anything humorous happens. <laughs> you know, prior to that, Buddhism is pretty staid and disciplinarian, and Vimalakirti uh, is just playing. He's brilliant.
3: <laughs> and his goddess friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe we should sign off now. Thank you for coming and uh thank you for sorry for our technological glitches, but here we are and uh, uh be well, everyone. happy mother's day
1: Happy mother's day. thank you everyone
3: bye bye.